Right then, welcome to Be Positive on men's and women's radio stations. Be Positive is the show where I hunt down motivated and positive people to find out more about them, to get their stories and to try and get as many ideas that they might have that you and I can benefit from. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on the men's and women's radio stations websites and our pages at Facebook and Twitter. And every episode is available as a podcast as well. So you can go back and listen to any that you might have missed. We've heard some great stories on the show, some from very incredible, motivated people. Others where they've overcome some difficult times. Some have changed their lives but they've all given us ideas to put on our virtual buffet for us to try out in terms of positivity and motivation. And I've always said that this show is not just about hearing people's stories. I, as much as you, want to glean these tidbits and try them out and then let you know how I've used them or whether whether they work for me and what tweaks I might give them to make them work for me so that you can too. So on today's show, I thought it'd be great to go through some of the ideas, tips and tricks that we've heard so far to remind you of those little nuggets and to see how I've been getting on with trying some of them out. First of all, one of the things that has really come to light as we explore motivation and positivity is the idea of being in control rather than just expecting things to happen to change our mental state. We really need to be aware and take action to get motivated, stay positive and to avoid things that will go against that state of mind. I guess a lot of the time we do this subconsciously, but the more aware we are, the more chance we have of controlling our frame of mind and changing it where necessary. One of the first ideas we heard about this on this series was from our guest, Dr. Steve Bedwell, who used the analogy of a mental bucket. So rather than there being a state of motivation, that we all just have a mental bucket of mental energy and being aware of when that bucket is empty or full is the key. We need to be aware of our own energy levels. I think that is the first thing and that is super important because when you become more mindful of where you're at during the course of a typical day, then you can start to match energy to task. I think about it as the three-hour rule, which is Today, Paul, if you only had three hours of highly motivated, highly creative, tip-top mental energy available to you, what would you do during those three hours? So with this great little piece of advice, I did a little experiment, which I encourage you all to try for yourself and do it for your loved ones, do it for your staff even. Everyone's different. So you want to find out, let's call them bucket levels, what they are for you and other people throughout the day. You can do it quite simply if you just keep a notepad and every hour or every half an hour, you give yourself a score for how empowered you feel or what you observe in others. And if you do that for three or four days, you'll see a pattern emerging. So I worked out that first thing in the morning, I'm pretty low. It does take me a while to get energized for the day, a couple of cups of tea, watch the news. But then I have about two hours where I feel really energized. 
I can concentrate more and I certainly get a lot more done. Then I start to lag. My next burst, which lasts about an hour and a half, is straight after lunch, which would make sense, I guess. Now, it's not rocket science. I pretty much could have told you that was going to be the outcome before I started. But now I know pretty much what those key times are. And as is key with many of the things we hear, I then took action. So now, first thing, I don't attempt to do any vital work that I've got on for the day. First thing in the morning, I start my day with the the mundane tasks that don't need a lot of creative thinking or motivation. And then I use the two hours when I know I'm going to be at my peak to get all the things done that I need to do that day that require energy, motivation or creativity. Then I do some of the more routine jobs that need to be done. I wait till after lunch to do anything else that requires more mental energy. So I probably did quite similar before I actually looked into the schedule. But by consciously making the decision based on the result, I now deliberately schedule calls or meetings into those peak periods and even just conversations rather than putting them in the times when probably at my lower ebb. I was looking up about this and in Sweden a few years ago, there was quite a famous experiment where a number of businesses cut back to having just a six hour work day. People claimed they were happier, less stress, enjoyed the work more. The downside was it cost a lot of money to make that change. But in some cases, the workers were 85% more productive as a result. So if they were being judged by their productivity as opposed to just the hours they worked, it could be seen as quite a success. I know some IT companies have used the results of that experiment to change their working patterns of their staff. And some other countries are now proposing a four-day week for that very reason. Now, I'm not suggesting this is something we can easily move towards, but if you're aware of your own personal bucket of mental energy and then you arrange your days around it, you could find you're more productive, motivated and more important, happy. Another idea Steve presented us with was this way of forcing yourself to take action. Like everything we hear, these ideas are no use unless you take action. If it's something you you want or need to do, You count five, four, three, two, one, and then you take action. Regardless, you just take action. If you know you need to get to the gym, you don't give yourself the opportunity to talk yourself out of it. So Steve's idea is to count down from four to zero, and then no matter what, you must take action. Now, I've mentioned before how I've embellished this idea. So what I do is I make it a bit more of a game because I find it more motivating. So I will literally, and sometimes I do it out loud, go, right, four, come on, Paul, get ready. Three, you can do this. Two, this needs to be done. One, here we go. Right then. And then I do it for everything where I might have been putting it off from hoovering to making that dreaded phone call. I count from four to one and then just do it. 
One of the ideas we've heard from a number of people, and I must say I was amazed by how many people came up with this, was the idea of being reflective about what you are grateful for as a way of motivating yourself moving forwards. I think a lot of positivity can come from realising what's going well and what's good because we do have this tendency towards focusing on all the things that are going wrong and things that are going bad. So if you can have a visual representation of all the things that are actually going good, then hopefully it's, you know, a little bit easier. Actually, I had this stuck up on my wall for a while right when I come in my door and it's things I'm grateful for. I just wrote it up on a piece of cardboard and basically I've got, you know, coloured pens there. So when I walk in the door from home from work, I write down for that day something that I'm grateful for. And then all of a sudden it's this filled page of things, you know, whether it's family or, you know, the lovely person that served my coffee that gave me an extra shot or, um, you know, down to like the support that I've gotten from family and friends during a tough time. So it's small things and larger things. I think that's actually something that really helps me and potentially might help other people. And this list or gratitude diary is a really helpful tool. I recommend it to everyone, especially now I've heard so many of our guests raving about its effectiveness. You can add to it all the time and every now and again, you can just review the list. It's really motivating and sometimes it can put your day into perspective. If you haven't done it yet, please do just grab a bit of paper and just write down all the things that you are grateful for, no matter how small they are, you might surprise yourself. True to my word, I've tried this out. My scrappy notepad is filling up every week and every so often I have a read through it and I can report it really works. It's also great fun to do and it'll make you smile. So there is no harm giving it a go. One of the other things we've also heard quite a few times now is being aware and more importantly, doing something about your physical health and how it can affect your mental health and well-being. And I might add vice versa. Your frame of mind can also affect your physical health. Again, we all know this, but sometimes, especially if you're like me and not drawn to regimented physical exercise or being conscious about what you eat, So sometimes we need to hear that it makes a difference. I asked our guest Stephanie Morgan Todd if she thought there was much correlation between feeling good in your body and feeling good in your mind. 100%. Without any doubt in my mind. Honestly, I, I hate saying it because it does. It cringes me out. But I can't tell you how much it changed my life. It's not just because it's what I do. When I get up in the morning, I feel like I've got to train and get it done before I start my day. Mentally, I'm not going places if I haven't had a training session, probably. Even on a Sunday, Sunday is like my rest day, but now I'll do yoga, which is something, it makes me laugh because it's something that I never thought I would do, but I genuinely will sit there and do yoga because I feel good afterwards. So if you're like me and you're not really drawn to going to the gym or playing active sports. Well, Lee Hathaway had a great idea for solving this by giving yourself a very different motivation. I, I find it very difficult just to get on my bike and go for a sort of, you know, 10 mile cycle and a round trip. That's why I've never enjoyed jogging. So I try and give myself uh, reasons to 
to do that exercise or get you know a destination in mind so for example when i when the lockdown happened what i was doing was going on you know most places were closed but i but i did a tour of sort of uh um what would you call them sort of alternative supermarkets if you like so one day I'd, I'd look up on the map and I'd go, right, where's there a good... Because the food places were open, you know, where's there a good Indian supermarket? Oh, there's one there about four and a half miles away. Right, what, you know, there's there's a, there's a shortage of... Fl- this was when all the supermarkets were... The shelves were all empty, but all those little boutique places still have plenty of stock. So I went, right, let's... Uh, Let's look up some Indian breads I've never made before, the recipes, you know. And so I go, right, I need some of this flour, this atta flour and some of this. Right, great. Now you've got a reason to get the exercise to cycle to the supermarket. You've got something to do, you know. And and, and so the next day it was like, let's, you know, what else is around here? Oh, there's there's an African supermarket. There's a there's a farm shop, you know. And and, and so each one of those was a reason to get on the bike and go and do something. And I- so there's Lee and he's getting more physical exercise, but he's almost tricking himself into it by giving himself a very tangible goal. Now, I promised openness and honesty, and I can report back that I haven't joined the gym, but I have started using Lee's idea to a degree by going to places on foot that uh, I don't necessarily need to go to, but giving myself a mini goal just to do some walking. I don't know about you, but before lockdown, without realising it, I did a fair bit of unconscious exercise walking around and stuff. And I've started to notice how that slipped. I'm no longer walking to the train station, walking through tube stations. So if you're in the same boat as me, just make an excuse to go walking or cycling for an hour. I saw a great quote on this subject today. It goes something like this. It is exercise alone that supports the spirits and keeps the mind in vigour. The article I was reading was in relation to the UK, where we're a bit behind some other countries in viewing the mind and body as totally intertwined beings. The report goes on to state that we need to change the way we view physical activity in the UK in order not to see it as something we have to do or should do or ought to do, but as something that we do because we personally value its positive benefits to our well-being. We all know this works on a small scale as well. I told you about the idea of giving yourself a, a temporary lift of energy. If you need one, just stand on your tiptoes, look up at the sky, hold your arms out, a bit like Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption, but you don't have to do it in the rain. Just try it and see how energised it will make you feel. I recommended it the other day to somebody on Twitter. I was bombarded with comments afterwards of how much people realised they had a burst of energy. It is a short burst, but it does work. And it also works with something quite as simple as sitting up straight. Your body and your mind are so intertwined subconsciously. If you don't believe me, Try thinking of your toes without wiggling them. Go on. Think about your toes, but don't wiggle them. And if you haven't wiggled them yet, any second your mind is going to make you. Our minds and our physical being are one and the same. The idea of exercise of any type helping your mental state is very real. 
and maybe it can have an effect the other way round as well. Anne-Marie, who in her story told us about her sister taking her own life and then almost at exactly the same time being diagnosed with breast cancer, she reflected on how having an optimistic frame of mind helped aid her recovery. I'd, I'd like to think if you can try and just think, like the sensible part of my brain was saying, you know, these drugs are supposed to work so they're going to work so so I've no need to doubt them I I knew that my the cancer had been caught early and I knew therefore that the prognosis was better so yeah I I didn't I just I wasn't going to go there really with any sort of hesitation that they weren't going to make me better now amazingly this area has had very little study and sometimes can be controversial. So in the absence of hard data, we'll call this optimism affecting your health a belief system. We know that by having a positive belief system, it does have effects on your physical well-being. I'm of the opinion where if a belief system you hold is positive and does no harm to others, whatever the belief is, whether it be theory, religion, anything, it's got to be a good thing. Even if at this stage we can't prove an optimistic frame of mind can help you with certain recoveries or illnesses, what it can do is very dramatically improve the way you deal with them. As I say over and over, perception is everything. When I spoke to Nick Reed, he presented us with a belief system that he and I have found incredibly useful for staying optimistic. Everything happens for a reason. Working those reasons out is the tough bit. So when something bad happens for you, initially it's very bad. And, you know, we may get into a little bit of depression about that or take ages to get out of it. But normally out of that situation, some other path happens that is good for us or out to be better. Let's say sorry, for instance, something happens to you um, and you ended up meeting your wife through that through that bad period. You know, that you wouldn't have met your wife if that bad patch had not happened. So I also think that me saying that everything happens for a reason is my coping process of trying to get something bad into good. So Nick uses the belief system that everything happens for a reason as a way of putting his life into context. And when bad things they might happen, they might lead to something good. So in short, beliefs can have big effect on your mental and physical health, and even more so on how you deal with the issues arising from both. Maybe the time has come where we no longer differentiate between the two physical and mental and treat the conditions as a whole. Eastern medicine has been far more inclined this way for a very long time. Like I say, this show is not only about hearing people's great stories, but to get their nuggets so we can try them out. And if you find just one that helps motivate you, changes your mental state for the better, or keeps you positive, then it's all been worthwhile. Don't forget to drop us a line if you do try any of the ideas you hear and let us know the impact they've had. 
And if you're a company or a brand that could benefit from sponsoring the show, then please do get in touch at mensradiostation.com. I, I really apologize in advance if I take the mickey out of my next <laughs> guest, because the last interview we did, I seemed to spend the whole time taking the mickey out of him. But... <laughs> It's only because we have that kind of banter. He knows I'm yeah. joking. He knows there's nothing serious in it. Um, Stephen Williams Jr., welcome. Hello, Paul. It's very nice to be on. Thank you for coming on. Now, my original intention for getting you on the show was to give us a, a young person's outlook on positivity and motivation. It suddenly occurred to me... I was going through some old DVDs mm -hmm. that um, I've known you for about 15 years. It's so, incredible how long it's been. So you're probably not as young as I perceive in my mind. Well, honestly, you saying young there made me feel so good about myself. I'm touching 30 at this point, which is terrifying. That's what I mean. So in my head, you are still that four foot nothing. Um... <laughs> oh, I'm still four foot nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I met you in 2006, 2007. Yeah, as... on Tricky TV, where you were the um, producer magic consultant. And you were one of our young performers. And how old were you then? Oh, I think I was about. 11 12 i want to say right so my first bit of tv i had no idea what i was doing you were very gracious there by the way you were you were lovely in how you guided me through the whole process that's because no one knows what they're doing <laughs> <laughs> you're not alone <laughs> but we get there in the end of course my and episode i assume you had to do lots of editing to try to make me look good i I don't believe that for a second. It's been, <laughs> been a long time since I've seen it. But like uh -huh. I say, I, I'm just transferring some of them onto, um, onto uh, the computer, so I'll be able to let you know, actually. Okay, excellent. So that was you doing magic, and you were doing it uh, yes. at the time as a hobby because you were still at school. Yeah. So My dad happened? still had to drive me around everywhere because I was too young. Yes. What happened next in your career that made you, because you now, well, or at least you did until March of this year, mm -hmm. made your living solely from going out as a magician. So how did you get from the 14-year-old to, to being uh, a full-time professional entertainer? Yeah. I mean, it's such a strange job and to make it a career you know, there's no real specific path anybody can go on to make that a job and we'll kind of find our own way. So I did that TV show with you, which I found just from an audition I sent in a tape. I'm sure you were awash in these home videos of people trying to get on the show. And then from that, I put together in magic, there are competitions. So magicians will perform about a 10 minute act and then get judged by other magicians. And there's a very specific kind of magic act that does quite well in these kinds of shows. And it's normally very classical and, you know, nice music and things. And I developed one of those acts, just a 10-minute speciality kind of uh, performance with doves and things like that. Well, um, I put that together really for magicians, but Ken Dodd is a fan of magic and happened to see this at a magic convention. Wow. So, you know, I was about 14 years old and Ken Dodd is or was hugely helpful to young performers and 
would really try to give anybody he could a leg up. So he came backstage and, you know, my dad, as you can imagine, who was with me was in awe that Ken Dodd was back there. And he came over. And I think especially being from Liverpool, kind of, you know, mm. specifically made a beeline to me. You're from Liverpool, you should have said. <laughs> I'm amazed it's taken this long for me to mention it. <laughs> but, but, um, and he came over and asked if I'd want to take part in, you know, his shows. He was still touring until, you know, the very end. He had these marathon kind of five, six hour shows he used to yes. do. Did you ever see him perform? Yes, I did. I, I did. was one of those people sneaking out at half one because <laughs> I was never going to get home otherwise. <laughs> well, people literally used to take in flasks of tea and sandwiches to his shows. They knew they'd be there that long. Absolutely. So he asked me if I would, you know, be a part of the show, which was incredible at, you know, such a young age. So... My dad and I used to travel around with Ken doing his shows around the country. But as you say, it used to go on for so long. I used to open the second half of his show and we used to fly a snow machine up in the theater. So up where the lights are, we used to, you know, bring up the snow machine for one of the tricks. So you had to wait till he'd finished to get it back. Absolutely. Oh. So it would get to about 3 a.m. And my dad's like, I'm in work tomorrow, Stephen. Come on, <laughs> just sing the song, Ken. <laughs> oh, your poor dad. Oh, I know. He's a saint for doing it. So how long did that go on for? That probably happened for, I would say, about two years Wow. And at the same time, I was also doing close-up magic. So at things like weddings and corporate events, um, I, would, I would wander around the tables doing it. And I guess when I was about 16, I uh, did a tour with you and Stephen Mulhern. You did indeed. Which uh, I, oh, I, you know, as I say, I'm nearly 30. My memory is going now, Paul. But was, <laughs> it about, was I about 16? <laughs> I, I guess you weren't yet driving. Roughly. No, my dad was still there. Yeah. Absolutely sick of the act at this point. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, oh, yeah. How many times has he seen you float <laughs> a table? Poor man. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you, it's still in the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, was, um, I did that tour with you and Stephen. And a, a guy called Russ Stevens, who's very well known in the magic community, who I know you know. Yeah. Um, he, I've always been very close to since I was young. He's always been this huge help. And he said to me, why don't you consider doing cruise ships? It, right. wa it wasn't really something that I knew as being any kind of viable way of making a career, but he'd done it for quite a few years. So he helped me with my show, developing uh, two different 45-minute shows. He got me in front of an agent. And then since then... I've spent the past six years, just before um, all this happened, the past six years on cruise ships. Amazing. Yeah. So your hobby, the passion, the love became the job, which, as we know from talking to people on this show, people who do something they love for a living helps their motivation anyway. Absolutely. If you weren't doing that for a living, as in, you haven't been since March. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you still have a motivated, positive uh, personality? Or without it, are you completely hollow? Do you, you know, do, 
Do you miss that so much? That's the thing that only motivates you. No, not at all. I um, I do. I find myself being just generally an incredibly, you know, happy person, and I do often see the best in situations. And you know, even with what's happened now, it does bring about new avenues, which potentially, you know, I wouldn't have done or wouldn't have considered doing prior. So, you know, I do find things absolutely are what you make of them. And have you managed to make something of the lockdown? Well, I've actually um, set up a hypnotherapy studio here in Liverpool. Amazing. Wow. So, you know, that's what I'm, that's what I'm now doing. And of course, you know, from that, that could potentially become hypnosis shows either, you know, here in England or, or on ships. But, you know, hypnosis is one of those things which I guess I've always had a quiet interest in. But being away so often, I've never really explored. And it was only now in being back, I thought, you know what, why don't, why don't I delve into this? And that's now developed into a whole new land career, which I, which I never had. Amazing. So you have found a positive out of a very big negative. Yeah. So as far as your personality being positive, where do you think that comes from? Well, before we started chatting, I was thinking about, you know, thinking about my happiness and what my, I don't want to say mottos, but how I kind of live my life in a way that provides me with happiness. And a few things came from it. There's one real umbrella, I suppose, again, motto, which I'm almost cautious to tell you because I don't want to come across like I'm a bit of a fortune cookie, but I'll tell you why I do follow this and why I really think if people truly follow what I'm about to say, they will be happier people. We're on the edge Um, of our seats now. You know that, don't you? Well, I'm going to say it, and listeners do not turn off. I'll explain why this had an impact with me personally and why I realized it is so important. And I think the main thing people can do to become happier, to live happier lives, is to truly not care what other people think. You know, an amazing piece of advice. Well, I I realize it's almost a bit of a cliche and, you know, it sounds very easy to say, but I, I came out about five, six years ago. And before that, uh, you know, I wasn't unhappy, but obviously I was walking around as wearing a mask, I guess, somewhat, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly with the burden I was walking around with and it felt like such a huge deal. I, you know, I, I certainly tried to suppress it. And looking back, the reason I did that and the reason, you know, I didn't come out sooner was absolutely because I cared about other people's reactions to it. Yeah. And I realized when eventually I kind of built up the courage to tell people that, you know, I look back and go, that was the best decision I have ever made, you know? And one, nobody was surprised, which was a big thing. (laughs) I I was almost a bit disappointed every time I told someone and they were like, yeah, (laughs) you know? That's a story I've heard so many times. It's (laughs) hilarious. I wanted a huge fanfare and there was nothing. (laughs) I thought there'd be pyrotechnics, confetti, but 
you know, I, I put so much onus on other people's opinions that I stop myself from being truly happy. And no part of me regrets making that decision to just tell people. And I guess going through that experience made me realize I am now so much happier now that I didn't care what they thought and I just said it. And bringing that into every other aspect of my life has had nothing but huge benefits. Yes. When you first came out, how much of a weight was lifted off your shoulders? Oh, it was, you know, it was huge. I, I remember I was, um, I was on a, I was on a ship and I, I, me and my dad are incredibly close and I speak to him most days and you know, he's, he's now in the fire service. He, he's a man's man. He was a postman for years, you know, northern bloke. And although in the back of my mind, I thought he knows. I, I, I just knew that he knew it was still such a huge thing to he's actually thinking, vocalize. Son's an entertainer. <laughs> <laughs> he loves a bit of sparkle chance. and musical theatre. Yeah. Percentage <laughs> chances have gone up dramatically, but he's never said anything. <laughs> they are some incredibly skinny jeans. <laughs> um, so yeah, I knew he knew, and I knew he wouldn't have a negative reaction, but nevertheless, there was something about actually vocalizing it that just I, I was so incredibly nervous about and, you know, was incredibly anxious. So I almost found myself living two lives, I guess, where on a ship, it was somewhat, you know, it, it certainly wasn't a secret, but back at home to the people who I'd grown up with and, you know, my family, it, it was this thing I hid from them. So I thought... It got to a point where I was like, I'm, I'm going to have to tell my dad. I wanted him to be the first person I told. So I remember it so incredibly clearly. I, I, I went to the little coffee shop on the ship and I sat down and I picked up my phone and I was making the call and I was dripping in sweat. And I, I dialed the number and he picked up. I said, hi, dad. He went, hi, Stephen. You're just on loudspeaker at the minute. I'm in the car with Jackie, his missus, and with your nan and Ben, who's Jackie's son. <laughs> I would, I'm just phoning to see how you are. You know, I didn't say it. <laughs> um, and I, I didn't. I just, I kind of, I went, okay, and moved on. You know, about two weeks later, I'd spoke to him several times since. I phoned him back and I was like, hey, dad, what are, what are you up to? You are, well, I'm just at home. I'm on the couch. I'm on my own. I was like, well, if there's ever been a time to tell him this is it. And I did. I said, you know, I've got something to say. I said, I'm gay. And the response was nothing but lovely and warm. And of course he knew it. He was just waiting for me to tell him when I felt comfortable. And did, did you tell him I was going to tell you two weeks ago, but sadly <laughs> you were in a car full of people and I was on loudspeaker? <laughs> It didn't seem like the kind of thing to broadcast to the entire family at once. So, yeah, um, so yeah it was, it, he made it so then easy for me to discuss it. And that, I guess, then snowballed in my confidence to tell other people. And the relief I had of just knowing I wasn't weighed down by this 
by the burden of the secret was incredible. Did you notice lots of relief from them? You know, I suppose I suddenly when people can make jokes about it rather than there being, you know, tension about, so are you are you seeing anyone at the minute? <laughs> you know? And suddenly just being an open thing felt so much better all around. Yeah. And, you know, I, I also realized I, I was incredibly lucky in that experience and that, you know, my family and friends were immediately incredibly accepting. Yes. But, you know, with lots of gay friends, for the, for the most part, nobody, even if they do find at the time that their family doesn't quite take to it as they'd hope, living your life as your true self, no one regrets that. No, sometimes you have to go to extremes to be able to do that, and yeah. every single person will be different. Mm -hmm. But and you know, you do it in your own time as well, of course, and um, in your own way. Absolutely, yeah. Whether that is making a, a nervy phone call to your dad whilst you're, you know, sailing around Bermuda or something. Yes, I mean. That, that does, uh, does put some distance between it, doesn't <laughs> it? Does. it? <laughs> um, but you'll always have a fond memory of Bermuda now. Absolutely. So, you know, on outside looking in, I realise saying don't care what other people think does sound, you know, like this tired bit of advice, but it is so true. I don't think it's a tired bit of advice because even down to minutia, people worry about what other people think. Yeah. And one of the questions, if you ask somebody a lot later in years than yourself, you ask them, what do you wish you had done less of or more of? They will say, I wish I worried less. Yes. And if you're worrying about what other people think, it's not even a valid worry. You know, equally, I think, you know, people shouldn't be afraid to fail. Either that's very linked in, I suppose, to caring what other people think, but people won't go for things on the off chance that it might not work out and, you know, it might look bad on them in some way. I, when I was 18, I decided on something of a whim that I wanted to become a helicopter pilot, which, you know, sounds so random, but the way it came about, I was performing close-up magic at a wedding. And I saw a helicopter come flying in and everybody stopped in the wedding. There was hushed tones throughout the venue. <laughs> and it was so cool. I was like, oh, I want to do that. I want this response from people, you know, coming in to then perform at a, a Holy Communion in a helicopter. <laughs> so uh, I did. I, I ended up going to, to America to study to become a helicopter pilot. Wow. And... About, you know, maybe a month into, into the training, I realized I actually wasn't enjoying it. You know, it, uh, what outside looking in, I thought was this incredible thing. Now I was in it. I thought, this really isn't for me. And you've got to imagine, I was studying in America. I, I had a going away party for this. It had been, you know, almost an event I was doing it. And just a few weeks later, I'd gone, oh, I, mm, I don't want to do this. So ultimately what happened was I changed my mind. In fact, I spoke to a guy called Richie Smith. He was a magician. He was a big help to me as I was growing up. And the bit of advice he gave me was what you don't want to do is climb a mountain 
and get to the top and suddenly realize you've climbed the wrong one. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it had such a profound effect on me that ultimately I just, I stopped the lessons and I came home. But it was one of those decisions I look back on that I'm sure there are things in people's life that they would love to do or maybe even just try, but stop themselves from doing it because it might not work out or, you know, again, they worry what people might think. And it could be anything, you know, it could be, there could be a man listening to this who doesn't want to learn flower arranging, even though he loves, you know, he walks around a botanical garden and loves it, but feels like, oh, I can't learn flower arranging because what will people think? Or, you know, what if I don't end up liking it? It's such a shame in life to not pursue these things you may have an interest in. And ultimately, if you change your mind, that's fine. It's nothing to be embarrassed about because it's fun. It's just following what you want to do. So in other words, don't regret things you didn't do. Just do them and don't be afraid to admit you're wrong. Absolutely. If you change your mind, you know, I might give you an opinion on this, which in five years time, I look back on and go, oh, I completely disagree with myself there. And that's fine. We know we're always growing. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's one of the best things about us human beings. But you're totally right. People do get caught up in, I can't do that because otherwise I'm admitting I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I can't quit now or, you know, even just be afraid to start. I, I also think people, I, I listened to the episode you had with um, Steve and he mentioned goal setting. Yes. And I do think it's incredibly important that we do have goals and that we you know, are, con- are constantly aspiring to achieve things. I, I read a book called The 10X Rule. I don't know if you've read it. No. No. <laughs> Um, it's the 10X rule, and I'm just going to Google the author. It is Grant Cardone. Um, it was the audiobook I listened to, and I'll forewarn people, he's a very American marketer in style. The way he, he presents his ideas, especially to a British audience, may be off-putting for some people, but the, it, what, what came from the book I thought was excellent, and I'll kind of give you the synopsis of it. What his method, I guess, was, is that in life, we should set goals, but make them 10 times bigger than what at first you may, you know, you may perceive. So for instance, let's say it's someone's goal to buy a house. He proposes that we should say, I want to buy 10 houses. Because suddenly, if you're buying 10 houses, or if that is your goal, you're going to change your life in such a way that you're making decisions and you know, you're, you're following certain paths that will lead you to something bigger. And ultimately, if you don't get the 10 houses, you just get five. That's still five times more than you would have got if you hadn't have tried. It's an interesting way of thinking about it. You know, and people, again, I guess, might be afraid to set a goal as lofty as that because of how they may be perceived. But, you know, just by setting it and making it something you strive for, you will change your life and you will 
ultimately achieve more than you possibly ever thought you could. Yeah. Do you set goals yourself? Yeah. So in my, in my office here, I've got a big whiteboard and I have a, a huge list of things that I'm looking to achieve in, you know, some are in three months time, some are within five years. And then I guess as kind of a, a productivity hack, the office, the um, whiteboard is split in half. So uh, the top half is all my goals and things I'd like to you know, aspire to. Mm-hmm. Below that is a list of tasks and it's broken up into um, weekly and daily. And each day I, I change that part. And it just leads me towards these bigger goals. But by having them right here in view every day, you know, I've tried all the apps and all the softwares to, to make this easier, but I find they can almost go missing. Whereas having it right within my eye line every single day, it really does help me achieve more. And, you know, it, it gives me that kind of motivational boost I might need to look over and go, oh, that's where I'm looking to aspire to. I'll take the necessary steps. Yeah, I think having something, um, no matter how basic, visual, that's always there, uh, rather than an app, is far better. I agree. You know, it, it, it gets lost in a sea of apps on your phone and, yeah. you know, it can become disregarded. But if it's something you literally see every single day, it just keeps it in the top of your mind. And also, I think you should make them fun. Oh, absolutely. Because then when you look at them, it's not like a to-do list. It's a goal list, you know, yes. colored pens, photographs, pictures. Absolutely. Um, anything that you can stimulate your mind to make you more motivated, the better. And you can't do that on an app. Well, you can, but it will never no. be as strong as having it on the board in front of you. Of course. And, you know, there is something quite satisfying about your writing your daily to-do list and then rubbing off each thing as you, as you complete it. Yeah, because you're evoking another sense, so the sense of touch into your goals. Yes. As well as just reading them and deleting them. Uh-huh. And any of that will help your mind keep them at its forefront. Absolutely. Cruising, uh, I know I've done it, and it is the new circuit for entertainers, but it does involve a lot of hanging around. It does involve a lot of traveling and yep. a lot of waiting. Living which, out of a suitcase. Yes. Uh, being away from people. Uh-huh. Did you enjoy it when you did it? I hated it. <laughs> I hated it mainly because you are on stage from the minute you open your cabin door to the That's minute you very close true. it again. And I thought, well, it's just like being a red coat with better money. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will say, although I do love the job, and I'm not just saying that in case the bookers are listening to this, <laughs> I, um, you know, you do make a very valid point in that as soon as the audience have seen your show, everybody, every single person on that ship now knows who you are, and you're continuing to sail with them for the duration of the cruise. Yes. So you can't really turn off. And what I will say, often I do find a little bit, um, a little bit depressing is, you know, you've got to imagine doing a big theater show and you've got 2000 people in the audience 
And then they see you the following morning at the buffet putting yep. an omelette on your plate. You know, it's a bit of a come down in that sense. Well, it's not just a come down, but, but it's that you are still on stage. So yeah, whatever it is they say to you, you can't react how you would react if you just met them in the street. No. They are still paying guests. And so yeah. and I'm sure this, you know, it's bad enough when you do a gig anywhere and you see your audience and chat to them. Not bad enough because sometimes it's absolutely lovely, but everybody becomes a critic. Oh, and, absolutely. of course, my favourite and every comic who's ever worked will tell you as well, people will come up and go, yeah, here's one you can use in your <laughs> show. And it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. thank you. Thanks thank you so much. Thank yeah. you so much. And I found when I did it, I just spent most of the time in my cabin reading. Oh, I mean, room service is an absolute blessing. Yes. But so when you're traveling, waiting, hiding in your cabin, yes. maybe not as motivated <laughs> as other times, like five minutes before you're due on, mm -hmm. what do you do to keep yourself positive and motivated? I listen to a lot of podcasts. Good man. And, you know, there's the, the old thing I'm sure you've heard about the five monkeys. Yes. Um, it's probably been discussed on the show, but very briefly, um, the, the kind of idea is that you are the, the median of the five people you spend the most time with. So, you know, if, if your closest circle of friends, the five people you speak to the most, there's a very high possibility that they're all in a very similar pay bracket. You know, they all are earning roughly the same amount. They probably all have very similar political and, you know, religious beliefs, things like that. Mm -hmm. So the kind of theory here is if the people you surround yourself with, and it doesn't necessarily need to be people you talk to. In this case, it's people who you maybe listen to on podcasts. If they are incredibly motivated people, if they're incredibly positive people, by the very nature of you surrounding yourself by these positive influences, you will find yourself taking on that kind of positive attitude. You know, and it's, it, I find it's so true in its kind of concept it, that the meaning behind it is so correct that by listening to things like podcasts and audiobooks, you know, even if I'm alone in the cabin, you do really find yourself absorbing other people, people's positivity. Yeah, people have said before how you become the, the average of the five people you spend most time with, but I've never yeah. heard people relate that to the five people you most spend your most virtual time with. Um, but I guess that's absolutely true. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's absolutely a way when I'm, when I'm traveling and it's a long, you know, it's a, a long-haul flight and I'm, I'm there, as I say, living out of a suitcase and I've been away for a month. Just having these positive surroundings, which, you know, are, are just a, a tap away on your phone, I do find to be incredibly beneficial. And do you find when you get home, the people that you surround yourself with have a similar mindset to yourself? I do. I think, you know, when I was always away, you know, last year, if I'm away for, say, 
46 weeks of the year on chips. When I come back, the people who I then radiate to are people with very similar mindsets to myself. And, you know, any kind of negative influences, I suppose, I guess because I'm back for such a short amount of time, I just don't really want in my life any kind of toxic people are not the people I want to be spending time with when I come home. So, you know, I, I guess, although there the example is that I was away, people can do that in their normal day to day if they are, you know, here all the time. Yes. And have you found yourself as you've progressed in years, as we've discussed, um, uh-huh. changing your circle of friends accordingly? You know, I guess that is very true. Yes. Any, any kind of toxic people or, you know, people who just generally don't have the same or similar outlook to myself, I have just found myself drifting apart from. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. No. Well, as you say, you are who you hang around with. If you're the average yeah. of those five, um, it's going to happen. My, um, my friend Richie would always say, you can't be soaring with the eagles if you're clucking with the turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who he took that from, but I, I'll, uh, I'll quote it to somebody. <laughs> so are there any go-to tools that you rely on to help your mindset? I, I guess I've tried things like meditation. I'm sure it's been discussed on the show. Um, it didn't really, I, I personally, I know it's hugely beneficial for some people. I didn't get a huge amount out of it, but I do think it is beneficial if people have time to themselves. And personally, I love coffee. I'm such a coffee snob and I have my beans imported and I want to know the origin, all that kind of thing. And my form, I suppose, of meditation is every morning I wake up about 7.30 and I make a pour over coffee. And it takes time, you know, kind of crafting the kind of coffee I enjoy is a process. And I find that to just be this almost self-meditative meditative state of a morning where I've just got this alone time where I go through my little routine so meditation doesn't have to be sat cross-legged on the floor. That, I, that is I, effectively your meditation. I think so. I think I've almost pegged on this, you know, this feeling of everything is okay today. You know, today we're going to have a good day just by making a cup of coffee. As, as ridiculous as that sounds, I suppose that has almost become my form of meditation. It sounds like it is absolutely your meditation every morning. Mm-hmm. Who's the most positive person you've ever met? Oh, you know, I've mentioned him a few times now, but Richie Smith, who he's the Guinness World Record holder for the longest ever magic show. He did 32 hours, I think, of a show. Um, I mean, to be honest, Paul, I start losing my audience after about 40 minutes, but um, he did 32 hours. I start and... losing mine after four. I wouldn't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he, no matter, he's been through some incredibly difficult times in his life. And no matter what, he's always there with a joke. He's always there with a smile on his face. And he, he's a real kind of inspiration to me, I guess, in that no matter what he's been through, he really does look for the positives and 
he finds real joy in people. Being outside and just chatting to people is something he finds so helpful and it kind of fuels him, I suppose. And, you know, it's such an empowering and inspiring thing to observe that just by walking through the city, he'll chat to anybody and he'll just make a joke about, you know, with someone who walks by. And it, it's infectious to see it. And of everybody, he's, he's got such a good outlook on life that I find it so inspiring. Uh, we can tell you've worked with Ken Dodd because you keep mentioning happiness. Um, <laughs> and I think we're starting to see your formula for happiness is um, don't worry about what other people think of you. Yes. Being honest. Yeah. So both of those are covered with the coming out mm-hmm. and also not being afraid to admit you're wrong. Yeah. You know, don't be afraid to change your opinion about something. Do you have any other things that you say, well, that's part of my formula for happiness? Yeah, I think a really big one, not, not to bring the mood down, is you will die. You know, you, I guess if you tell yourself that every day, that you only have so long here and you will then just die. So why, it's so crazy with that knowledge to not do everything you want to do. You know, if you would love, if you, if you visited Canada and you think, I would love to live there one day, why? Why just make this this hypothetical thing? You have one life and you will die. Why not put it into action? And I think just reminding yourself, this is your only shot at this. Lisa, well, we'll say that's my belief, that you have, you know, one chance at life. Why not grab that bull by the horns and do everything it is that you want to do? Very good advice. So um, a question I ask everybody, and it is the hardest one to answer. Go ahead. I'm nervous. What three words describe your personality? Oh, I would say loyal, honest, friendly. There was a pregnant pause there, Paul. I think, are you, uh, are you disagreeing with this? I, no, I'm not disagreeing in the slightest. <laughs> um, I, I totally agree on all of those. I oh, would excellent. add honest. You, you'd add honest, did you say? Yes. Oh, well, I, I hope so. You know, I, I think just, I, I hope I'm just a very open person. Without wanting to say what you see is what you get. I think that is true. I, you know, I certainly don't try to portray myself as anything else. Thank you so much for talking to us. Not at all. It's been so much fun. Um, we wish you all the best with the hypnosis. Where do we find you for that? Thank you. Well, the hypnosis website is enigmahypnotherapy.co.uk. And I'm also, if you don't mind, going to plug my own podcast, which is called Dodging Death. Uh, there are currently 60 odd episodes and it's me and my friends uh, just chatting and it's lots of fun so if anybody's interested it's dodging death available on any podcast player or dodgingdeathpodcast.com it is good fun uh, thank uh, you to- a very different show to this one very different i haven't been invited on yet but we <laughs> won't talk about that Stephen, thank you cheers paul I hope you've enjoyed the episode and don't forget to get in touch via the websites and the social media feeds and, of course, sharing 
is caring. So please keep on sharing the episodes with your friends as well. We've got some more exciting and very different guests coming up next time with some novel ideas. Plus, you'll get to hear how I've been getting on with some of the ideas we've learned so far. So till next time, be positive. <laughs>